Ironic because there's only one side to Ricky Gervais. In honor of Steve Carell and Foxcatcher, what actor do you want to see reveal their dark side next? I'm Katie Rich, and to stick with the office theme, I feel like John Krasinski could do really well as the new Matt Damon of Fresh Face Psychopaths. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. I've always wanted comedian Dimitri Martin to play a serial killer. I don't know why, something about like cold Mitch Hedberg-like one-liners that would bring dread instead of joy. I still think it's a solid choice. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Hugh Jackman, because prisoners didn't cut it, and X-Men tells us he could beat the living shit out of people. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Juliette Binoche, because Patches told me to, but... Also, I think it's a good choice, and I'd love to see her as a Bond villain. That's a really great idea, actually. Uh, why? I don't understand the lead-in at all. Why is it ironic that Ricky Gervais is only has one because side? Because Ricky Gervais is only a monster, and he was the original guy in The Office. Thank you, Katie. I thought we I loved I, I, I thought he was not a monster. It. No, Ricky Gervais is a monster. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you, it's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 48 for Tuesday, November 11th, 2014. Happy Veterans Day, everybody. Uh, In honor of everyone thinking that David's Juliet Binoche as a Bond villain idea was so fantastic, we have two new reviews. You guys really work fast. Uh, David, what are our new reviews? Yeah, our first review is my favorite in a very long time. It's from Ted Words 26 who says, I was listening to the podcast the other day while walking down the streets of Glasgow to class. I hadn't made it very far when they started talking about Katie, Elizabeth Taylor's corpse, pot stranded in a spaceship, and making a movie of it. Next thing I knew, I was laughing hysterically while crossing the street with many, probably drunk, Scots staring at me. That being said, the podcast is great. I'm glad there. Dave is there to stick uh, stick of for Marvel movies. Everyone should give it a listen. Thank you, Ted Words. And our other is from that James mental Over... image makes me extremely happy. Just yes. want to chime in with that. The other is from James Over eighty seven, who uh, left a review that's a favorite of mine for other more obvious reasons, which we'll get to in a second. Of the ten million film related podcasts currently being produced, this is at least in the top one thousand, with a vari- varied and engaging mix of reviews, hey. topical <laughs> film news, analysis, and broad pontification on perennial issues. The four. Now, f- uh, four hosts <laughs> offer a nicely diverse range of perspectives, and I generally find myself agreeing or disagreeing with either, each of them in roughly equal measure, though I feel compelled to mention that whenever the discussion turns to superhero movies, David becomes, in my estimation, an American hero. Dave Seven, in contrast, <laughs> becomes history's greatest monster. Meanwhile, <laughs> Katie, that is the first time that has a- happened. To borrow a comparison often applied to the host of another good movie podcast is the Leonardo of the group, but only with regard to the positive elements of that association, i.e. being a good de facto leader who helps keep things on track, rather than the negative ones, i.e. being the least interesting. Oh, and as long as I'm comparing the host to fictional (laughs) characters, Joanna is Hermione Granger and Patches is holding Caulfield's dead brother, Allie. Great podcast. Wow. Deep up the good work. Oh, my God. Um... Poetic. Given the Joanna shout out, I feel it's worth noted. Joanna is not gone. She's just not going to be part of the regular rotation as much, but we haven't kicked her out. Please don't. She's very busy. We still yeah, love it. It's just because she is, uh, she is on many podcasts and is very busy, all of which are worth checking out. And we one still of love which her. is on this feed every yeah, Wednesday. Exactly. You can find lots of Joanna without unsubscribing from Vining in the War Room's feed. So please don't go anywhere. We love you. Thank you.
Last Sunday, the HBO four-part miniseries Olive Kitteridge premiered to what it felt like some hubbub, and then it went very quiet because I feel like we're used to things like True Detective premiering or Breaking Bad before that and having conversation for weeks and weeks and weeks. And yeah, Olive not Kitteridge, enough murder or twists or uh, well, and it was also just endings. They're zombies, kind of, but they're all of the uh, the middle class kind. When is Cthulhu going to come out at the end of a miniseries? I'm just, I feel like we've already asked for that for decades now. Given the success of The Walking Dead, is probably only a matter of time. Um, well, Olive Kitteridge is both a quieter sort of thing, and also it just lasted for four nights because straight up miniseries. Four episodes. Two nights. Yeah, excuse two me. Nights. But uh, right, straight up miniseries are. It feels like they're making a comeback, but they're still very rare. You're more likely to get a limited series, a la True Detective, where it's ten episodes and people can, you know, talk about it for week after week. Although after apparently week. HBO is all about it. Doesn't matter how long your series is anymore. I was listening to a very interesting conversation between Andy Greenwald, the TV critic of Grantland, and David Chase, who is apparently working on this project about old Hollywood for HBO. But he's not sure if it's a TV series or it's a limited series, mini-series, or a, a movie. He's not sure yet. And HBO's like, it doesn't matter. It can be any length. That's what he says. And I find that uh-huh. very interesting when thinking about Olive Kitteridge because it's like, does it make sense to have two-hour-long blocks over two nights? I guess it does if you have HBO Go, which will soon be independent, and you know wherever iTunes or wherever people might catch this. It doesn't matter how long it is as long as people engage with it and you have the promotion to kind of beef it up and the Emmys at the end of the... And at the end of the cause, it doesn't really matter how long anything is. Yeah, right. My biggest, saying, well, my biggest well, grievance as far as its uh, forum was that it it was not in theaters where it could be part of uh, um, even broader conversation. Although you know, see at Sundance, these things do happen, David. They do play. Uh, Olive Kitteridge did not air at Sundance. <laughs> top of the lake. Well, top did. of the lake did. Top yeah, of, top see, that's a good did, example. But, um, and top of the lake is getting a second season, which uh, Olive Kitteridge Ayo. presumably will not because it is Ayo. based on a you know a, a book. Although it certainly could, complete. I felt like it really could. I could just live in that uh, town, and maybe someone you? should set up what it's about first. But uh, I, I, as the I won, uh, the only member of this podcast who has uh, I haven't read the book Katie has but I've seen all of Olive, Olive Kitteridge uh, and I could say that w- with some sense of uh, confidence that there really isn't much room for anything more beyond that which we're oh like, no I'm not know, saying like, there's a <laughs> sequel series but there's lots in the middle I there's so many characters more. and the life of Olive Kitteridge somebody set uh, this up before we get too far sh- absolutely yeah, okay. so Olive, Olive Kitteridge is, is sort of uh, like boyhood for a uh, very prickly uh, middle-class woman who lives in Maine who is probably undiagnosed somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, yeah. and That's an interesting yeah, read. I, I would, would not have I would left say to that. Interesting. Uh, you know, li- lightly so. So I common these days. I, I also, you know, lest anyone out there be confused, and I don't think this is much of a danger, I do not have a degree. I'm not especially qualified in uh, diagnosing such things. See but, three podcasts ago when we discuss people in the autism. <laughs> right, but that would, be, that would be my read on it. Anyway, the film begins in the 60s or 70s, whatever, a long, long time ago, uh, when she is in middle age, where she's married to Richard Jenkins, who's a pharmacist in this small main town, uh, and... The four episodes span 25 years. We see in the very first scene that 25 years later, she goes into a uh, park and unfurls a little picnic with uh, a gun and is going to kill herself. And then we wait for the next four episodes to see whether or not she goes through with the deed. Uh, And the episodes really sort of are equally spread across this amount of time. We see 
some time with with her and her husband. She's uh, not particularly enthused by her husband's perceived flirtation with his new assistant at the pharmacy, who's played by Zoe Kazan, uh, and her husband, uh, who's Brady Corbett, who is contractually obligated to appear for five minutes in everything worth watching these days, um, <laughs> and quickly exits the scene. what a job scenes. that is. Yeah, and... Um, and then the, as we move forward a little bit, we see their son grow up to become John Gallagher Jr. And we go through several of his relationships. And uh, it really is just the, the story of this woman's life. Uh, almost everyone in the movie uh, or the series, whatever you want to call it, begins with after her suicide attempt uh, or potential attempt, uh, a death, the death of a, uh, of a character we don't know very well. And death sort of stalks her as it does, I'd say, anybody who lives that long. Um, and just everyone who shows up, it's very sad. It's very plain spoken and beautiful. It is impeccably acted. The performances in this are staggeringly great, uh, from top to bottom. This is coming from David, someone who usually doesn't care one whit about actors. So this well, is, that's uh, not, I, no, I but that's you are not true, someone but... who would come out of something and saying, well, it was really no. well acted, but the fact that you're commenting on it, I think does indicate how good the acting is in this. Yeah. Frances McDormand, she's just so good at it. Who produced all... it, by the way, who yeah. like, handpicked this material for herself and like made it happen, which is. And uh... Olive Kitterich's character is, it's really interesting to see her sort of uh, reluctantly blossom from being a background player it's not she's not even necessarily a protagonist if not for that framing device you you would be uh it would be easy to mistake her for being sort of a supporting character in the story uh and slowly as people sort of peel away from her life comes into the fore over the course of these 25 years and francis mcdormand made that transition so inextricable from olive's maturation or 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 you know closedness and bitterness as a, as a person her regrets and uh it, it's so beautiful to watch everyone uh, you know zoe kazan john gallagher jr richard jenkins all these people uh are phenomenal in it and really bring life to it uh, clancy the dog is maybe my favorite character of all uh really takes the stage in the fourth episode in which bill murray plays a pivotal role um i i thought this was one of the best things i've seen all year on any medium and uh, would really recommend everybody check it out but anyway what do you people say well, Pat, hey, Katie, you've read the it? book. Well, yeah, I've read the book, but I, I did only manage to see the first episode, not for lack of wanting to, just running out of time. Um, but I thought it, the the episode that I watched was such a really lovely translation of what the book had going for it, which is yeah. just this very – it's a it's short a, stories. The book is short stories, and it says, you know, oh. Olive Kitteridge is a major character in some of them and a very minor character in some of the others, and they take – you know, they jump around time, which I believe the series does as well. Um, and you just get this sense of life lived in this one town. It reminds me of our town in a way, kind of not, not really the same structure, but the idea of the place that is pretty ordinary, and there's nothing really special going on there, but it is the character that you were following throughout the whole thing, and you're watching the way life revolves around this place and how it can be sad and beautiful and – Especially with Olive Kitteridge choosing to have her be the major character you're following. She's somebody who is so difficult to understand and difficult to get along with. And even in this first episode where you're kind of seeing her tension with her husband around him kind of, you know, not, you know, he's, a, he's the opposite of a lecherous man. Like he likes this young woman who is his pharmacy assistant but would probably never dream of cheating on his wife. But Olive notices it anyway. And, she, you know, you can see her as this bitter wife and they're not having any sex. And, you know, you don't really... 
you you see kind of the setup for it and then it turns into something a lot more complex and that's what the entire book did for me you're, you're giving these setups and these lives you think you know and seeing kind of the hurt and the people behind it right. um, and from that first episode it seemed like Lisa Chalodenko the director and especially these actors did a really great job of capturing that sad but totally understanding tone yeah it has none of the the script and i think this is allowed by its format has none of the concessions that i thought limited uh are the kids all right which was lisa cholodenko's last film um and, and made that feel a bit rote and too broad i think she really tapped into the essence of this material and was given the time to to do it justice and you really feel the weight of that time pass and it, all the care the actors allow that progression to feel very believable and yeah the relationship right. as you were saying Katie between Richard Jenkins and Francis McDormand is so beautifully realized well the other thing that I really like about it is in you know she comes off as so cantankerous and what's interesting is that she's a school teacher and I think in that first episode you she's kind of characterized as such like this kind of grumpy teacher we all have and then what happens and this happens in the book and I think the movie is very successful in this way is by casting her as a side character in episode two at least in the first half where she meets this kid that she used to teach and he's going through this whole ordeal and we see this whole other side of her this very loving I mean she can really open up to this kid who's on, on the brink of death in some ways and uh, that that reframes her entire character and the way that Chotolenko paces this miniseries I mean I could envision it all as one kind of rambling story but gliding between these different perspectives where she is the main character where she isn't um, it, it just challenges her character and we see all the different sides and Frances McDormand is totally up to the task and when the miniseries kind of escalates in a very strange way there I mean, there are moments oh, yeah. that the, these characters will never forget because they're so crazy. They don't seem unbelievable either. I no, mean, the third episode is what towns. you're referencing, yes. I think. Uh, the third episode takes quite a turn, <laughs> which I did not see coming. Does it take uh, place in a hospital? It does, yeah. Okay, yeah. I also like how these these smaller characters who may seem more inconsequential and Dowd plays one of Olive's good friends. Uh, Martha Wainwright plays this pianist who keeps showing up oh, so you know, good. early so in good. history. She plays at the local bar and then all of a sudden we see her playing piano at a, at a retirement home or, or a, an assisted living facility. And just time is passing. It, it's not about putting on the screen, you know, eight, eight months later or something, which they do. But it's more about how the time passes for these characters who keep reappearing. And I think it's really successful in that way. And I'm also obsessed with Olive Kitteridge in a direction fashion, what Chodolenko does in terms of just camera movements. It's, it doesn't have to be uh, kind of loose camera, no sticks kind of directing. It's all very composed. It's all very scenic. And uh, I'm becoming more and more obsessed with talky dramas that still find composition and still hold still or use camera movement to kind of push motion forward. I don't know. What, like there's scenes where Chola Olive Danko. is – Okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, Danko. I couldn't I, – Ch I, I was trying – I was trying to just hold that in, and I couldn't. It's an injustice. Appreciate, I appreciate what she does there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that there's much more to say about Olive Kitteridge, except that I look forward to watching the rest of it, and hearing David get excited, excited about acting makes me excited. It's a blank space in your viewing roster, and you should write her name. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
For this week's mini segment, I'm bringing back the quote quiz. I believe we've done this already in the year 2014. So I tried to change it up a little bit. These are all films that are currently in the bottom 50 to 100 on Box Office Mojo for year for what they have made in 2014. So they're between 50. They're between 50 and 100. Oh, crap. So, you know, they're not movies that made $2,000, but they're not Guardians of the Galaxy. So somewhere in that realm. Uh, I have determined that David will go first, Dave is next, and then Patches is third. And there is a tiebreaker question. There are three questions apiece. And a couple of these are conversations. So I'll be, there's just a couple lines of dialogue. So I'll let you know when that's the case. Who's ready? I am. Okay. Okay, David, this is two people talking to each other. Ready? David? Okay. Adam. (laughs) I'm a dozen different parts of eight different corpses. I'm a monster. Tara, you're only a monster if you behave like one. Uh, I, Frankenstein. Indeed. Did you see that movie? No, but... Adam. I mean, it wasn't hard. That was good. I mean, I didn't see it, and I never would have gotten that quote. Okay. Dave. Yes. Just one line. You have to make the money to buy a ticket. Uh, Nightcrawler. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so going to lose this game. Like Everyone is on fire. All right, Patches, I think you might have seen this movie. You ready? Oh, thank God. Okay, and uh, I'm going to cut out the last word of a sentence. Oh. That would be too much of a giveaway, but I think you might get it. Imagine such an entity with a full range of human emotion, even self-awareness. Some t- scientists refer to this as the singularity. I call it... Oh, um, transcendence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. The non-Nolan hey, Nolan movie this year. <laughs> that was so terrible. Oh, I liked it. I I'm the only it one. Lucy. No. no. <laughs> that would have been a good answer. Uh, I don't know if these are going to get harder, but they might. All right. Dave. Or yeah. David. Oh. Yeah, David. Okay. You know how everyone's always saying seize the moment? I don't know. I'm kind of thinking boyhood. it's the other way boyhood. around. There you go. Boyhood. boyhood. <laughs> it's the last right. line of boyhood before. The last line she says in boyhood. Anyway. You got to yeah. let her finish so the people know what the full line is. So they can memorize it. You know, it kind of feels like it's always right now, you know? It's, it's, it's the other cuts. way around, you know? Like the moment it's, seizes us. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's good words to live by. All right, Dave. Yes. Mr. President, I want to go to Vietnam. We've got to bring the super heavy funk to the cats over there. <laughs> I'm happy that that phrase existed in a movie this year. <laughs> I think that was John Wick <laughs> who said that. Yeah. Of, uh, what? Who would be a super heavy funk? Super heavy funk to the cats over there. Man, I have no idea. Uh, it's probably like a Kevin Hart movie I didn't see. <laughs> what? <laughs> The Kevin Hart movie that takes place in Vietnam, I would see, but uh, it was Get On Up, the James Brown oh, vibe. Oh, shit. <laughs> I would like to see a, a Kevin Hart movie where he brings the funk to Vietnam. I, I would see it, too. Modern day Vietnam, even. Yeah. yeah. Modern day Vietnam. That's Just, key. you know, tourism on boats. Okay, Patches, this is going to be a conversation. Yeah. Okay. Percy, what are you doing? Martin, dude, I'm putting a little cornstarch on my huevos, man. It's a little too humid down here. Percy. Dad, wake up. Martin's putting cornstarch on his balls. Oh, my God. Ooh, Wait, I have a guess. Re- can you repeat that just one more time? <laughs> okay. What are you doing? Dude, I'm putting a little cornstarch on my huevos, man. It's a little too humid down here. Dad, wake up. Martin's putting cornstarch on his balls. Percy and Marvin, they Martin. have a dad. Oh, Martin. I, um, like I saw this. So I don't know what it is. It sounds it like an Adam huevos Sandler is movie. In there? Hmm. I don't think any Adam Sandler. Well, is it blended? 
No, it's chef. Oh. oh. Yeah. Cornstarch. That's a chef diss right there by me calling it Adam Sandler movie. That's true. <laughs> Chef's a much better movie than Blunt. I didn't see Blended, but I assume. Okay, David, I think you're going to yeah. get this one too. Yeah. In a bar, I once saw him kill three men with a pencil. Bar, I once saw him kill three men with a pencil. That's John Wick, is it not? It is John Wick. Yeah. David oh, has three nice. points. Oh, I shouldn't have reminded you of that. Yeah, movie. no. Guys. <laughs> You might have run away with this thing. All right. If you had just said the line was just, oh, I think that I would have gotten that. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. Okay, Dave. Yeah. Who has sex for three hours? That's the length of the movie Lincoln. You did the full Lincoln. <laughs> uh, that's probably Neighbors, right? No, it is sex tape. Oh, <laughs> sex tape. That was a very good oh, guess. Snap. That's exactly what I thought. That is a... Judd Apatow with, pop culture line. I went with my I, gut, but what I forgot is that Neighbors was probably pretty successful this year. So I yeah, Neighbors is definitely in the top 50. Yeah, Your mistake. Okay, Patches, last question to you. Well, here's some news, Cretans. Toby's been running again and running fast, real fast, fast as that grim taquito will take him. Toby, you want to fly with the Eagles? You need bigger wings, son. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> Toby McGuire's life last Tuesday. <laughs> Grilled well, keto is really the takeaway from this quote. I was going to guess blended again, but I'm actually going to go <laughs> with may- maybe this is planes, fire, and rescue. <laughs> it is need for speed. Oh. No. <laughs> planes, fire, and rescue is also probably in the. Did top. that even come out this year? It did. I was okay, stunned. Good. It did. As long as I remember it. Yeah. That's what matters. Oh, you mean planes, fire, and rescue? I think so. I did it know. come out? I have no idea. D- David did. reviewed it. David, did it come out it this did. year? It did. Okay. There you go. Well, uh, uh, David Ehrlich ran ago. away with this quiz. Oh, yeah. I trumped That's his did. jam, though. This That's what he guy. does. I what, what's, the, what's the tiebreaker? Can we do the tiebreaker just for fun? Um, oh, God. I have to look it up again. I, I no. copy-pasted it incorrectly. <laughs> um, but here, everyone guess. What do you think number 50 is? Just, just throw out a guess. The fifty, the fiftieth highest grossing movie of the year. Oh God! Um, wait, can you tell us how much money it's made? Yes, give me one second. It made fifty thousand or fifty million four hundred seventy-four thousand eight hundred forty-three, and also it has changed since this morning. It's going up. Uh, yeah, I guess so. It's so. not blended. It was. It was basically in a dead heat with what was fifty this as of this morning. It is not blended. <laughs> Let's see, is blended in the top 100? It's escalating. Blended is 56. Million. Well, it made slightly more money than blended. Anybody got a guess? Anyone care about and it? Interstellar is currently 51. God. Uh, did it come out in August? No, it came out in January. Oh, and right along? No, no wait, right, right, oh, right along made way more money than that. Right along and is actually, number 16. In the sequel in Right Along 2 he's going to go to Vietnam and bring the funk. <laughs> That's definitely good. David, do you have a guess of number 50? No. Dave, I Frankenstein. No, I Frankenstein was 90. This movie made way more money than I Frankenstein. Woof. Paranormal activity. Right, there are too many guesses. Let, okay. what the is answer <laughs> is if I stay. If I stay. And oh, I went. Movie, I went and saw it this morning. That's why it and went you up. Stayed. Well, the yeah. answer uh, this as of this morning was Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit, which I definitely forgot existed. Oh Corpus yeah, fine. 
that Kenneth Branagh's finest film of 2014. Congratulations, David. You kicked everybody's ass. As I knew I would, I'd like to thank uh, Katie <laughs> for writing the questions and my Can parents for always raising me to destroy everyone. There you go. reviewing Foxcatcher later this week, so I don't want to get too much into detail about that movie. But an interesting thing that you come away with from watching Foxcatcher, and it kind of becomes more obvious the longer that you watch the movie, is that it is both a movie about a crime and a wrestling team and kind of these this strange personality in a uh, in John DuPont that led to a story at the center of the movie. But it's also about America in that eventually at the end of the movie, there are people chanting USA, USA, but it's about uh, the American wrestling team and, you know, about the American dream in ways that a lot of movies can be. And it's something that, as we'll talk about later this week, really worked for me. It feels like a, a theme that emerges uh, gradually and really reflects a lot on the actual true story that they're telling. But usually if you have a movie and you say, as in Men, Women, and Children, it's about the internet or it's about racism in Los Angeles, as in Crash. That's just an automatic recipe for disaster. But I don't know if that's the true way to treat movies that kind of go about telling a theme, uh, not more so than a story, because I don't think any, any of them would say that they do that, but they are about a theme as heavily as they are about a story. So I was wondering if you guys also feel the need, if you can think of other examples of movies that are about bigger, something bigger than just the story themselves and very bald-faced about it. Not that, you know, something can wind up being about a broader theme in addition to a, a compelling story, but that it's really trying to be about America or about crime or about... <laughs> That sounds like, like every that. Oliver Stone movie. Yeah, well, as, I, as I said, as I said, greed. I realized oh, it's yeah. like an Oliver Stone movie. I, I mean, I, I I'm going to be careful to not make it sound like I'm shooting you down for oh, this right. question. No, I just think that you know many of my, or at least the way I should say, at least the way that I think about many of my favorite movies, I think of from an idea. I, I come at them through the angle of an idea first. Uh, plot, plot is really just sort of a mechanism for exploring what it's about and oftentimes uh, a barely present one. I mean, the, the movie that just jumped to mind is a recent example, um, just because uh, on your fighting in the war room bingo, you might be able to check this off, is Certified Copy, which is, you know, very much about an idea and the plot. Yeah, but what about becomes, America? Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, are you, are you asking explicitly about? No, oh, I'm not. I'd be more interested in American films that do this about America. Yeah, well, well, I don't um, mean I don't. I didn't really want only films about America, but I think America. that's a place where m American movies can get really terrible if they try well, to. Do I mean, it I think. Uh, huh, oh, what's um, shit? There's one. What is well, like Munich is very. I'm trying to think. There's a movie that's not Remember Me that ends with like a, <laughs> a hugely foreshadowing 9/11 that I just remember being like, this movie is is transparently about Munich. I mean, does it's like, do that. Munich, and Munich does. Do that. Yeah, Munich, of course, Munich does that. I'm saying there's another one that does so uh, much less tactfully and more, even more overtly, if you can imagine that. Um, and and then everyone was like, okay, we get. Oh, I'm thinking of like. It's not about 9-11 necessarily, but like Killing Them Softly, which I don't think is a great movie by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. But that is very in your face about being that. about America and about his big idea uh, and all the chess pieces. That right. I think it may very end. It either ends or begins with Obama on television at a bar. 
Just like it, him giving It may a be both. I mean, it, it begins with the audio of him speaking. And I think yes. it begins, it ends with Brad Pitt in a bar in where a Obama might be on television and he says, like, fuck the money or something, you know, that's uh, <laughs> an explicit reference to the capitalism. Yeah, I love that. I love killing them softly. Is it killing them softly or killing me? Killing softly? them softly. Killing them softly. Um, I love how crass that is about American issues and about how everyone seems to inhabit a uh, an archetype or or the worst part of America or different um, classes vying for certain for success by whatever their own American terms are. I really like how crass that movie is, and many people don't. Now, when um, you say I, crass, I, I a lot of people use crass to mean something bad. I. Yes, but in this in this case, um, it's just throwing it's it's splattering ideas about the American dream and about ambition, about wealth across this canvas like it's fucking Pollock or something. I think Pollock is crass in the way that they're splattering paint, um, and and the way you mean, that it eats you mean, Obama you mean like voiceover in a way. In what? Uh, like Raw? broad? I think crass is the is the wrong word. Crass would mean lacking sensitivity, refinement, or intelligence. The refinement element, I can Are understand. Are you reading? A t- yes, <laughs> because I because Katie's right in calling you out and saying that this is the wrong word for it, and I want to be pre- precise as to why. I think lacking refinement is what is characterized by your examples, but not intelligence. Well, I don't. I don't necessarily. Well, you seem to. I mean, I you're, you're saying that they haven't. Well, you're saying that they have intelligence. You disagree even. with the word's definition. Yes, I do. Because <laughs> okay. words change and evolve. So, sorry, Merriam-Webster. I don't, I'm not buying it. Get the patches uh, dictionary now. No, no I just. We all I, better appreciate it while we can. You know. Oh boy. Wow. Low blows there. Um, no, I'm just saying that I can appreciate a movie that kind of like swings its dick around and doesn't care about. You know, the subtlety or trying to kind of grind these themes into characters so that, that they barely exist and you have to read into them. A movie like Killing Themself, they could throw them all out and then have those moments be in, in slow motion. You know, there's a scene in Killing Themself where the bullet goes through the glass and this is just so on the nose and it's so vulgar in a way. But that's how it's pushing its themes through. That's what that's how it's mirroring American culture in a way. It's it is crass. I I stand by it. Uh, and I think Oliver Stone's films are like that, too. Dave, I want to defer to you because it does feel like you can appreciate some big, bold themes when they come up. Do you like do you also like it when movies don't bother going for the subtle and go for what they really want to say? Well, I mean, I think you could go either way. I mean, there's a lot that jumped to my mind. I'm trying to think about which order it's best to attack them in. Like you have movies like I mean, just to go with like the cinema of David Fincher alone. You have movies about Fight Club, which is about being a teenage boy that never gets a chance to grow up, but is about plot-wise this, you know, Project Mayhem fighting Brad Pitt and Ed Norton thing, which appeals to the person it's trying to communicate its theme to, which I think is part of its artistry. And then you have things like a Serbian film, which I won't describe too much because I know you probably, nobody wants to see it listening to this podcast. Nope. But it's, it's basically taking the idea, like the words of the theme, this government rapes you from your birth to your death, and like that thematic phrase, and then makes it real for like 90 minutes and makes you feel the horror of that. And it's sort of like the plot doesn't really matter, and at the end it's ridiculous. But then I think something like Gone Girl, to loop back to David Fincher, the book was so 
obviously like a beach read until the last chapter where you know spoiler alerts i guess if you don't want to know anything about gone girl but the pregnancy is revealed in the book a lot more uh suddenly and in a way that for me when i was reading it was like oh this book has been about marriage all along it where it puts you in a place where you're both with and against both of these people and they're going to stay together for the kid. Like literally that's sort of the punchline of the book. And then the movie allowed to make it sort of about the media because we have to be active in watching it. But that still sort of exists in like the theme of Gone Girl is this captivating mystery to draw you into an actual conversation about two sides of a marriage. And for me, those sort of themes are the the interesting ones because by addressing the theme in the way they do, they're also pandering in a small way to their audience. They're giving them a little treat of what they think they want and delivering a theme that directly applies to them. I think that's like the best case scenario. Of pandering while also doing something that's not what they're saying they're doing out loud? Well, like for me or someone like who's a genre fan, like it's a bonus if Speed Racer the movie is about something. Like you're gonna see Speed Racer the movie anyway. So when these things are really successful is when they find, you know, something I wanna see and like, you know, the raid being able to sell me and the idea that's just one guy taking out a building full of mobsters and then deliver something else. The raid didn't necessarily do that, <laughs> but it's a way to take a high concept plus. But see, I think that speed, speed Racer is always going to be about something, even if it's not explicitly sure. about something. You know what I mean? Like it's. Uh, I think all these live films. No one makes a movie in a vacuum. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's. Well, you hope that they have high, you know, aspirations behind what the movie's saying, but it's so hard to shepherd something like that through the process. An active theme and an interesting plot is like two of the most difficult things to make a successful movie. Well, that's why I, I'm a little disappointed in what horror does these days because I think – or even science fiction, those mediums and those genres seems, seem to be able to push like really on-the-nose allegory through the system e- easier. And uh, I was disappointed that uh, a few months ago when we were uh, reviewing Captain America – uh, Winter Soldier, that that was like, I think Katie and I were talking about how that was the last movie or the only movie to really confront NSA spying or all these kind of like that's government changed. threats that we have. Yeah, no, that's certainly changed with hmm. the introduction of Citizen Four, but that's an interesting point because we have to have this like direct documentary to cr- confront these things. And what I like is something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, and something that's or, or, or Night of the Living Dead, these things that are confronting socioeconomic issues or government issues um, very visibly, despite the fact that the veneer is aliens or zombies. We know these are allegories. We can tell. They're drenched in issues. And when the expository blah, blah, blah comes through, we, we know what they're talking about. They're talking about America. They're talking about the people. Um, but th- in the case of the movie, they're talking about aliens. Uh, and that's what I wish we had more of today. And I don't see that a lot. We either have to confront it directly in documentary form or we have to tease it with something like Captain America Winter Soldier, which I do think gets there a little bit. But we don't see a lot of that, especially not well, in Marvel movies and juggernaut oh, I mean, blockbusters. But not enough the in, in, confronts it in, oh, yeah. in, in direct, very direct form. Well, confronts NSA spying? 
it confronts no. NSA. Well, I don't want to say what the Babadook confronts, but it, you'll know you'll know it when you see it. All right, uh, I don't think it's but, more of a character thing for me. I mean, it's been but it's transparently about a single, like a strong emotional theme and an idea. It, it is not um, that scares are not in service of themselves. Right, it's, but that's an very, emotional idea. It's about characters. It's about relationships. It's on a very intimate level. I mean, the Babadook is an extremely successful movie in that way, but we don't have a lot of movies going after these big ideas these well, big what or or whatever america's all about it doesn't have to be negative it can be something positive if we think there's something positive in the country to dissect but not a, uh, not a single thing i think that your patch is like you're veering into like uh satire or informative pieces of fiction where it's like it's the interesting thing about these theme movies that are executed well is like you know, I watch Network now and it still applies. Not that, you know, it took so long for the NSA movie to come out. Like, I don't care. I, I mean, I hope, I hope I don't, you know, have another tragedy that erases the fact that I, Captain America 2 was about the NSA, so then I forget about it. But it sort of doesn't matter if I do because that's, like, up to history. Thematic movies should be about, like, you know, the big, the big questions. And that's why they should, they should hook you into it. Well, that's why you you wish Elysium had been a bigger deal or a more successful film because that was chasing this American notion of the one percent versus the ninety nine or the ninety nine percent versus the one percent, and that could have been a huge vehicle for this conversation, and just wasn't because it had muddled ideas. It couldn't figure out its allegory. It couldn't. We really didn't really need out. it to be. I mean, at that point, no? there had been so many. I mean, there are so many films that broach that subject, and don't ask me to name them because <laughs> I, I don't. It makes me think of The Dark Knight Rises, which was like kind of about Occupy Wall Street in this incredibly muddled, useless way. But it's also like that document, that dialogue is so on the forefront in the American consciousness and stratified across all classes. We really, I don't think, needed a stupid August blockbuster or even a smart August blockbuster uh, to come in and, and solve it or bring it to the fore in a way that it wasn't. Being handled already. No, no, no. See, that's gentle that's, masses there a little bit. You're you're in your bubble there by thinking that you do need people to confront these on a mass level with mass with with mainstream entertainment because not everyone is getting all the information. Uh, no, see, I think like, having that conversation. No, the the difference is what you said is like getting all the information. Like all the Occupy Wall Street movies are just Robin Hood movies, like but with different facts. It's like that's the theme, you know, is like the underclass is going to elect a hero to take down the upper class because we're not going to do it ourselves. If we did it ourselves, that'd be another movie theme. It's not about, oh, look, Dark Knight Rises is Occupy Wall Street. It's about tap, trying to tap into that theme with something that's a Batman movie so you could get the stupid people to watch a Batman movie and learn about class politics. Whether or not it succeeds, doesn't. But like that, it's well, the Batman movies are an interesting example because the Dark Knight got into the idea of government spying, and there was just like all these people kind of twisting themselves in nuts, trying to be like, "Is Batman Obama? Is Batman Bush?" And it really wouldn't take a position, and people so desperately wanted it to. And I feel like it was indication of what Patches is talking about, where you have a time when your genre entertainment is really tackling ni- these ideas from a specific well, point of view. That's what Interstellar does, right? I mean, Interstellar well, Batman, is Batman, kind of... Batman frustrated people because its politics were absolutely incoherent. Yeah, they were, exactly. I mean, it's not that it's not that the movie had to take one side or another. Uh, no, it, they, they weren't <laughs> smart enough to for its uh, self-contradictory nature to be of any interest. In terms of like um, 
talking about big ideas in politics. Uh, Patches and I watching Legend of Korra sort of do a grand, you know, what does what different political ideologies uh, have to do with each other and are any of them fully good or bad? <laughs> We're learning a lot about Hitler and fascism again. That's true. And, through this cartoon. And also in Star Wars Rebels, how it's sort of taking this weird turn to, you know, sort of ask the question of what happens when an empire is formed it's been really interesting to watch in children's entertainment for them to tackle these big issues with like you know one episode is about the genocide one episode of star wars rebels is about the genocide of an entire species and they just sort of throw down this word genocide and someone gets like a sad look on their face and then they move on and i don't know if that's engaging with the issue but it's at least laying the groundwork so we could come to things like cinema with like better thematic ideas but it seems like that is kind of like you know when you address hitler and fascism like that's the kind of thing it's not that it's easy but it's this it's the kind of thing that's a black and white issue that in many ways we learn about through the past when you're talking, trying to talk about Occupy Wall Street or about um, the Obama era or something like that that's much more recent, you really run the risk of just people not engaging with it because it feels too current. Like, that's what I feel like no one is really doing anymore. Like, it's, it's much easier to teach about, teach about fascism than it is to teach about the, you know, financial crisis or well, something like I, that. I mean, sort of. I mean, South Park does this on a weekly basis. Like sure. Last... Well, they do it in a much different way. Well, I mean... I guess it's the same underlying theory, but except they're instead of them subtly moving you to an understanding of the issue, like their last week's episode about freemium games had multiple scenes where somebody was literally walking you through a chart about why freemium games are evil. So like, I I think that's the same thing I've been trying to say to patches, which is like current events and whatnot. That's the place for like our South parks and our John Oliver's and our televisions and our things that are quick to turn around and produce. Whereas like, if I see a film that's going to have a thematic thrust, I want it to be universal. I want to not regret having seen that film after a conflict is over. You know, for whatever reason. But then you say at the same time that network still feels really current. Yeah, and I think that's just about, you know, like people in their engage or business in their engagement of media, which isn't going to change. But it's not, you know, for me, it's not about something like the dawning of 24 hour news networks because I grew up with that. So, well, this was what was so strange about uh, seeing Citizen Four and having the movie break news at that opening night screening where there were journalists in attendance who were covering the revelations that were made in the first scene that were going to be revelations for exactly one screening of this film in history and then were going to be texture of a story um, after that. And so that was a movie that really uh, sort of exposed that dichotomy and, and blurred the line a little bit as seen how long-form entertainment and Laura Poitras was saying that, you know, you, if you're investing in long-form documentary filmmaking uh, as a conduit for delivering news, you're going to have a, a lot of failure. But uh, <laughs> that was a really interesting to see. I, I think it's, you know, going back to your original question, Katie, about, like, can a movie just start with an idea? And if we're centering on ideas about America, I think this is what Richard Linklater does so well. Um, mm. Especially, I mean, movies like Waking Life are just about, here, throw, here's a bunch of ideas and let's just talk about them. Um, but even something like Boyhood is very much, what, what, what is it like to grow up? X amount of years in American culture and what, you know, what does, how does that impact real people? But for me, it's also about like where he's living and this country and this idea of living here. Um, and yeah, the way that Boyhood carried incorporates, along by characters, the I way know. that Boyhood incorporates the two elections that 
or maybe three elections that take place over the course of it is really interesting. I well, what's interesting about scenes. those scenes is those are the only scenes in the movie that they can't in any way predict. They're really uh, playing with fire in those because, you know, assuming that Mason survives or Eller Coltrane who played him survives, they can say, okay, he's going to go to college. He's going to, you know, do these things. He's going to have a girlfriend now. But when they're canvassing for Obama, they can't say Obama's going to win the election. Um, they can't determine the direction the country's going to go in because they don't have that foresight. So uh, those, are, those are really interesting scenes in that regard. Yeah, I wish going to Sundance as we prepare we're like what two months out David's groaning already about going to Sundance this year. <laughs> but like I wish some of the films that we saw there some what directors and writers were doing on the indie level confronted more of this kind of casual American reflection as opposed to being quirky character portraits and more of the Linklater like slackers era stuff just like cutting off a piece of fabric of America and seeing and what that idea is and seeing the people that you would encounter there uh, have you just been missing the post your highness cinema of David Gordon Green? It's true. No, you're right. Manglehorn, this his new one is very much just like setting down the camera in the middle of this old man's life about how he has no idea what the world is like. And uh, you're right, Prince Avalanche is kind of like that too. Joe, not Joe. Joe, uh, I love Joe. Yeah, yeah, Joe was good. Joe's. I was actually thinking of Mud, which isn't a David Gordon Green movie. Please ignore me. Mud, <laughs> Mud less so. I think actually Green's films are more successful. Than mud, which may I don't know if that's a controversial statement, but I'd take Joe or Prince Avalanche over them. These kind of like navigating the wide streets of of southern or middle midwestern mud towns, sucks. just like I'm not talking. I'm not. I'm not Let's going not back to that. Let's not end this conversation mud. on that note. Poor mud, Katie. Mud. Is there somebody? Is there a director that does this for you really well? Um, I mean, I was. I was citing Foxcatcher at the beginning of this conversation. Um, I mean, but I think most of them don't do it really well for me. I think most of the time I kind of get the sense of a movie saying that it's about this one big idea. I instinctively shy away because I feel like characters and stories are what I go to movies more often for, which is why Foxcatcher struck me to that degree. So, um, I mean, maybe Steven Soderbergh to go off on a really different tangent. Like when he makes movies that are about a big theme, he does them in a really fascinating way that feels so authentic. What movie comes Um, to mind when you think of that? I mean, I was thinking about Contagion. Mm-hmm. And Contagion, I, I mean, Traffic, Magic the Mike. They all have an understanding yeah, traffic. where they I are. Haven't, I haven't seen Traffic in a long time, but, you know, and Aaron Brockovich. Magic Mike is really fascinating about economy and um, the working class. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff in there that I only thought of just this second. So please don't let me say anything stupid. Oh, come on. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to review Foxcatcher, as you might have guessed from our conversations in this episode. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write all over the internet, places like Grantland, Vulture, and sometimes Vanity Fair with Katie. And uh, I put it all on my website, mattpatches.com. And I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, uh, each week we put the episodes on fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can uh, comment or share. Uh, 
or call me holding Caulfield's dead brother. Uh, whatever you want to do, fightinginthewarm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I want to give a shout out to Matt Patch's Grantland interview with Hans Zimmer, <laughs> uh, which I thought was illuminating. And uh, anyone who cares about Interstellar or Christopher Nolan movies, uh, which I assume at least all of you Someone does. probably have some interest in Christopher Nolan uh, as a figure in the film that should, should definitely go read. Uh, I am the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. I also write on the Dissolve, the AV Club, Complex, Playlist, etc., etc. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner, and you can find all of us together on Facebook, Fighting in the War Room. I'm Dave Gonzalez. My first name, DA7E, is also my Twitter handle. I write around the internet at places like Katino-Review.com and Forbes.com about mega franchising, including like superhero movies and Star Wars, which makes me America's greatest monster. And you could participate on the Thought Bubble. It's the podcast that comes out on this feed on Wednesday. It's a Q&A podcast where I answer your questions about superhero comics and the comic book movies and television shows that precipitate about it. It's been super fun. Check it out. You're already on the feed this Wednesday. If you want to give us a call, you might end up on the show when we decide to use those phone calls at 914-410-6450. I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, or on Twitter, or you can find all of us on Twitter, Jesus Christ, uh, at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, In honor of Steve Carell and Foxcatcher, which actor do you want to see reveal their dark side next? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.